Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. to the table Dallas we're glad that you're with us whether you're here in this beautifully filled room here in the summertime up at the the Mill Street house and wherever you are joining us around the world we know we have people listening to the podcast from around the world and so we're glad that you're here and taking the time to be with us as we start a brand new summer series we're entitling fruition it's based on Galatians chapter 5 22 and 23 famously known as the fruit and by the way it's singular only because in Greek it's a singular. I don't know if Paul made a mistake. No, I can't say that on a podcast. <laughs> no, although, although in the evangelical tradition, where's the A? Where's the A? It's got to be red, though. Oh, I can change that. It's got to be red. <laughs> For those of you who missed the reference there, when I was uh, learning to preach, uh, our preaching professor had a card in the back that was laminated, well worn laminated that just had a giant H in red and when you would say something that he you know thinks you shouldn't have said he would just hold up the card. Heresy. Heresy. If you got too many of those you didn't pass preaching. Maybe I didn't pass. I don't know. But it's singular although in reformed and evangelical traditions either one you'll read it either way so I won't correct you if you say fruits of the spirit or if you say fruit either one of those. Um, But the whole point of this is to take a look at these and say all right Um, What is it about these things? Because immediately preceding the text in Galatians 5, Paul has been talking about all the things that we need to get rid of. The things that are causing issues in the church there, which I would argue are the same things that we're reading about today, causing issues. And he says the best way to cultivate this is to reflect Christ in our day-to-day life. And he says the way to do that really is the fruit of the Spirit. We know it's familiar to us, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. You can say it with me. Love, joy, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against things like this. All right? So in this letter to Galatians, the Apostle Paul offers a profound yet simple list of nine characteristics, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that even a casual observer, you don't even have to be paying a whole lot of attention to what's happening in the world, to say and to notice that these are, would you say antithetical, is that a fair word? Antithetical to the way in which most of the world operates. Challenge me, true, false? Do you agree, if so, why, if you disagree, why? Are these pretty much antithetical to what we see happening in the world around us? Or is it just because I'm a pastor and I notice these things? <laughs> no, I think it's very contrary to the world around us. Okay. I think you can look on any social media, look on the news, look on any public forum, and you're going to find hatred and vitriol, and you're going to find division. And the things people pick to complain about and find fault with, even my things from years ago that they're digging up, like one of the uh, one of the political candidates last year 
they went back to high school. So something you said to a girl in high school that proved that women could not trust him. It, yeah, we, we are very deep in the hate culture. Somebody else? What do you think? Antithetical to the culture we live in? It's interesting that a lot of these things now, I see the pursuit of, like kindness is a big thing in schools now. Like, a, it, like the world, apart from Christianity, is taking hold of these principles and really promoting them apart from God. Um, so I, I have a hard time in today's world saying that it's counter directly to the world because the world is trying to promote these things too because they also recognize we need it. Gotcha. So they're, they're seeing a lack of it and so they're right. Gotcha. They're filling a void yeah. apart from God. Good, good. Anybody else? I would say yes, we advise these things, but it's never for yourself, it's for others. So like, you should be kind, but no, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's easy for us to pick it out in somebody exactly. else's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think um, I want us to come at this series. So what we're going to do is we're going to always be jumping off from that Galatians 5, you know, chapter. Each week we want to look at uh, one of them in the same order that he gets it. So this week we're going to be looking at his idea of love from a different text in Scripture. But I want to make sure that we understand at the outset what our thesis is going to be throughout this study. Because the thesis is important that, that God grows the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, not when we try harder. Because the message, every piece of research that I should never say that, um, a good bit of what you read about it, when you do the research on it, you think about it, and maybe even some of the study that you've done, the preaching that you've heard, it always somehow comes across to try harder. When really, it's all about being in step with the Spirit. So this is the season of Pentecost in the liturgical calendar. We celebrated that last week. And so we're going to follow in along with that and saying really what our life is about here now is walking in tune with the Spirit. Um, and so that's where we're going to focus our attention. So we're going to be today in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, um, probably one of the most um, familiar texts to us all. Um, probably if you grew up in the church at all or even tangentially connected to the church, this is a passage that you may be familiar with. And what are the challenges, let's start with this, what are the challenges associated with looking at a passage that we've studied and that we're familiar with from you know, our time walking in faith. What are the potential dangers or pitfalls that go along with that? You lose your mental dexterity. You're focused on one way of looking at it and you refuse to let it change. All right, so you lose some of your, I like that mental dexterity. There's our doctor in training working right here. Your mental dexterity, yeah. brain surgeon thinking there, okay. I like that. Our mental dexterity, we, we, we lock in. Right? We lock into something, and once we lock in, and sometimes we're like that monkey in a jar, right? You reach in for that banana, and you grab it around, and you realize you can't pull it out, but you won't let go. Right? Okay. What else? Things taken out of context. Sorry? Things taken out of context. All right. So you're, yeah. Because you're in the first one or below it, yeah. it means something completely yeah. unwanted. So we, we, we think, oh, I know this. I don't have to worry about the context, and whether or not I'm in the context here. Okay. Anything else? I mean, they... They, they can become just like proof text for points that predetermined. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we want a position, we want to think something, and then we pick the scripture to try to back it up. 
right? Somebody else? D? D. Yes. Oh, um, oh, we can go on autopilot because we grew up as a Christian. Yeah. So you go, well, obviously it means this because everyone says it means this and this is what my culture says it means. Right. Well, we could be wrong. That's true. That's yeah, the true. hardest part is actually reading the text. Yes. <laughs> Good. Good, says a linguist. I love it. Boy, we have a plethora of talent in this room today. I think it's much harder to unlearn something than it is to learn. Right. So what I want to do with this Luke passage, this is the, uh, the lawyer who comes to Jesus with the famous question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? Um, and typically we've done this study before, and you probably have too, where most of the time we focus on the parable that Jesus told, and we're going to do that to some extent, but I really want us to kind of think through and talk a little bit uh, more um, as it relates to the front end of it, which I would argue is, or I would posit to you, is really like, uh, it's almost a debate. It's like a, a confrontation or, or a, I use the word debate, not in necessarily, like it's a, like who's going to win this kind of thing? It's like almost a challenge, and then the second half of the text is, of course, the famous parable that we know. Um, already. So somebody would go ahead and read for us Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. And for those of you who are with us for the first time, uh, we use the common English Bible, not because I think it's like the most superior translation ever done and everybody else's is rotten, just for the sense of um, a little bit more modern um, English and um, we all have this, so that we're all reading the same one. That's really what it is. I like the translation. Um, and we all get to read from the same one. So, CEB, somebody? 25 to what? 25 to 37. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan, who was on a journey, came to where the man was. But when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered the thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. So you have like a pattern here you probably picked up at the beginning. What's the pattern? What's the pattern that you pick up in the way that it's being um, arranged? 
was comparing the legal experts as the first people who passed by. Okay. And the guy was asking a legal question. Okay. And they were probably required by their law, I'm guessing, to, uh, you know, they'd be unclean if they touched somebody like right. this. Okay, good. All right, the pattern, um, the pattern and how it's being laid out for us here in Luke 10. You see a question, question <laughs> but the answer is really usually a question. A question. another question, right? So you have this kind of pattern. So the lawyer begins with a question to Jesus, okay? He's, uh, uh, um, Luke goes out of his way to make sure that we understand that he is an expert in the law, right? So in a culture of honor and shame, he's at, toward the top of the honor spectrum, right? When he's an expert in the law, like he comes with authority, right? So when you know when he talks, people listen, right? So he comes to Jesus, trying to it seems like um, to test Jesus's knowledge, right? He says, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" Does that seem like to you at the outset a rather unusual or um, unexpected question? for someone who is an expert in the Torah. Well, can, can I address the term inherit? Sure. That's my color thing. Okay. Uh, I, I've always read this story with inherit thinking that that means somebody is bequeathing somebody to me because uh -huh. they love me. Uh, this word inherit means to occupy and to dispossess. That it's the same command that God gave to Moses and Joshua when they were entering Canaan. So, you know, expert in Torah law here, he's, he's you know, get, getting that part right in, in, in reading the Torah on that. But uh, this is a different kind of inherit. Yeah. It's an occupying, and I'm going to. That means I'm taking somebody else out. Right. And so it's great that we understand that when, you, when you're reading from the Hebrew translation of the New Testament, you're going to get the Hebrew thinking on that word as opposed to the Greek thinking overlaid. So you're right. We automatically think it's something, oh, I just get this, whereas I like that. When you inherit the promised land, you're taking and pushing somebody else out, right? But, but he's asking it. <coughs> For eternal life. Exactly. That means, I guess, somebody has to go so yeah. that I can. There's only so many spaces, right? So, I, yeah, exactly. Good. I like that. But David, anybody else think it's How much is Jewish theology oriented towards eternal life? Yeah, so oh, as, my as goodness. Oh, <laughs> if you only knew. They would they would take you places that you your your head will be spinning. I try to listen to some of this stuff. And, and it's just, it, it's beyond. There, there is, there is eternal life, and there is different levels of it, and and all that kind of stuff. So there's a concern for it, yeah. Because you want to, you want to live in right relationship with Yahweh, right? Um, but then there's some question about, well, you know, what's my position going to be in there, and all of that is part of it. But again, the legal expert coming to Jesus, do you think he genuinely wanted to know? The answer to that question, or do you think maybe he already knew the answer to the question, but didn't like? It? I think he thought he knew the answer to the question. Okay, you didn't say something, Chris. Yeah. Uh, I mean, haven't you ever gone to a new church and been like, so? I don't go to any other church. About... <laughs> 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 Bad example. <laughs> 
find a new shirt. And you you go to the pastor and say, so, what do you think about the resurrection? You know, what what do you think about the divinity of Christ? Right. Like, you you know what the right answer is. You want to know that they know what the gotcha. right answer is. All right, good. All right, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah? It, it also seems like maybe there's a... Um, there's Jesus, prove yourself in public. It seems like there's something that... Um, the challenge. Yeah, follow the line. Yeah. But, but he called him teacher or mentor. He didn't call him rabbi. Right. So already he's not going yeah. down. He's already making sure that he understands where he is in the pecking order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Anybody else thoughts on genuine? I think we all, can we all, I mean, I think we're all probably in, in agreement from this is that it doesn't feel real genuine. Like he's lost in this world. And he's been studying the law all the time, and he really doesn't know the answer to it. It feels, even from the language of who he is, like, oh, you're a teacher, that it's, it's setting up a confrontation. Oh, what does the text say? The text says he asked this question to test him. Mm -hmm. he's, he's teeing him up, yep. thinking that he's going to be able to take down this young upstart and, and do it publicly. Yeah, and so Jesus decides to test the one testing him. Don't you love that, right? Verse 26, he says, he asks him a two-part question, right? First part is, what does the Torah say? Interestingly, okay, that, would, that one we'd expect. And then the second one, which is, how do you interpret it? Because there's a whole entire school or schools, depending upon your, you know, what, where you were and who, what rabbi you followed, as to how you interpret 613 laws in the Torah, right? So he's challenging him, right? So, how does the expert answer that? Really well. How so? Verbatim. I mean, he, he answered what the heart of the law was. It was yeah. to love God and love your neighbor. Right. And it's two concise little statements that wrap up all the law. Because yeah. yeah. in a parallel passage, that's what Jesus said. Yeah. He said you can sum up all 613. I think it was Matthew. Somewhere in there, maybe I can't, I'm very bad at applications. But he, in the parallel passage, he yeah. basically said, "You can sum it all up with these two. So he gave the right answer. Good. But he missed. He, he missed the Sama part. He missed the most important part, which was recognizing God, who He is, and all this other stuff. You know that that's. That right. stems from him. Right. So, yeah, it's kind of, he left God out. Yeah. Sort of. He also didn't answer the second part of the question. Correct. He left out the interpretation. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. He just exactly. gave the text. He just gave the text. Yeah. Uh, can I do an aside question? Everyone's probably going to do one of these aside questions. Um, so, why do you think that happens to be the greatest commandment? Loving God and loving your neighbors as yourself. Loving God and your neighbor as yourself. Does that you ever pop in your mind like why did he pick that one of all of them? Because if you can do those, you get a lot right. I mean, that's true. It encapsulates the other. Yeah. If you get those right, it kind of encapsulates everything that we're expecting. It's a good foundation to start yeah. from. Uh -huh. And any ideas why it needs to be multifaceted? Well, I was going to say it's also really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy enough to say about God. It's really hard to love all. 
Is that what you mean by multifaceted? Well, you know, heart, soul, in traditional King James that we all, uh, I learned. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Multifaceted. Okay. Not just your mind, not any because idea. Why it needs to be multifaceted? It, it's your whole being. Yeah. It's really it's, yeah, it takes it from being just a law, right? And showing up like you know, reading a certain amount of scripture and going to service once a week. It makes it a whole life encompassing relationship. It's how you act. It's how you think of other people. It's how you perceive other people. It's how you focus on serving. It's your whole being and not just a way of behaving. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's also something that you can't do on your own. I, I feel like I can't devote every thought, every physical use of my body. I, I, I don't feel like that's a feasible thing to do by myself. Mm -hmm. of, I belong to God and I will only do what you yeah, kind of. Yeah, and it goes back to our our thesis statement, right? This isn't something we do by trying harder, right? It is the work of the Spirit in us. So it's literally like if we're doing any work, it's more like weeding, like getting you know getting things out of the way and making sure that we're staying connected to the vine. All that imagery that that Paul is so famous for, right? Yeah, but I want us to see something here because um, you probably already noticed because there's a note in um, most of your Bibles that states that uh, the answer to the question that Jesus gave him, um, the lawyer um, has begins quoting, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, both parts of the, of the law. But I want to suggest to you that um, there's something we need to be paying attention to here that we talked about uh, last year at length when we talked about um, one of the keys to interpreting a text properly is to understand not just the context, the literary context, and where it fits within the genre and <coughs> other writings, but also the cultural context. And one of the things that we said early on was the most important things in a culture often, sometimes you'd say, always, go unsaid. Do you remember that conversation? We did that for a, a number of weeks, right? So you're like, there's this underlying thing that you're supposed to already know. Because remember, the scripture was written not to us, but for us. So we have to go back to the person who was hearing it originally. It's in a context and a cultural context that we need to understand. And so I don't want us to miss this, right? And so you hear a lot about those cultural things from me. Um, in our trips in the years we've been spending in Africa, which is a you know, cross-cultural piece. But we have uh, long-term missionaries in our midst. Um, Matthew and Cindy Wright, Caleb's uh, dad and mom, are here. And you were in Kosovo for a number of years. You were in Greece. Albania. Albania, excuse me. Albania and Greece. And so I thought, you know, they're a perfect person to explain how even today, 21st century, 20th and 21st century, you still have to understand the culture, and it's still expected for you to know it. Why don't you tell them your story? Okay, so we were asked to kind of shepherd a team that's from a church. We didn't know these people. We didn't know anything about them. But they wanted to come to Albania and do some prayer walks around the city. Explain what that is. 
in, in the culture. Explain what that means. Okay, so um, they, they wanted to be able to walk around the city, observe what was going on in the city, and let the Holy Spirit direct them as to how to pray for that country. And so that was their goal. When we, we picked them up at the airport, we took them to where they were staying, and their leader specifically said, now don't tell us anything about Albania. We only want to hear from the Spirit. We want to know what's going on here. And so don't tell us anything. And then, you know, at the end of each day, we're going to sit down, we're going to debrief what we see. And if you want to be a part of that debrief, that would be great. So we took them and, and turned them loose. They walked all around the city the first day and came back and we sat down with their debrief and uh, their leader said, so, so tell us what you saw. And one of the guys sat there and he said, guys, we absolutely have to pray against the spirit of homosexuality in this country. It is so pervasive. It's, it's just, I've never seen anything like this. And I said, okay, so, so tell me what you saw. And he said, I saw old men walking hand in hand all over town. They're holding hands as they were walking. I saw little boys holding hands with each other as they were walking around. And, and men kissing each other on cheeks. It was just, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, okay, back up the truck. <laughs> you need to understand that that's just a way that Albanians show how important each person is. It is a cultural way to show that you're close to that individual. Because in Albanian culture, the person is far more important than time. Did you, did you hear that? That's the cultural assumption underneath. Say it again. Yeah, the person is more important than time. You spend time with that person until you no longer need to spend that time. And then you go on to the next thing. The clock does not determine what you're doing. The person does. See, if you if you miss that in that culture, you're gonna you're gonna read it wrong. You're gonna totally read it wrong. So in this situation, I think um, we need to consider that at the time of Jesus, right, the honorable way for an elite person. So this is the expert in the Jewish law for them to put a lower class upstart back in place was to verbally challenge them in front of a crowd. Right? So if you do this, the idea being that if you, you can show them to be inept and not up to your standard of the law, and therefore you can kind of, um, you can kind of uh, lose, cause them to lose face in that culture, which is a big deal, right? So essentially, everything that we've read up to this point is setting up that this is a dude who thinks he's something, who is going to say, all right, this Jesus guy, he's a young upstart. And so I am going to put him in his place right off the bat. So when the lawyer stands up to test Jesus with that question, it is absolutely not genuine. Even though you know, we know it says it was a test, right? It's absolutely not genuine, but more than that, it's been predetermined, pre-set up for a purpose. To basically say, I want you to understand that God loves me and people like me and not you and people like you, right? So it's a hostile question, right? 
on the surface to kind of to kind of show that Jesus really doesn't know anything about Scripture because no one could know as much as this expert in the law, right? So he figures this is going to be a simple, easy thing. <coughs> However, um, Jesus recognizes his place and that his authority comes from his Father. And so for him to answer that question would be to take a position that doesn't belong to him either, that belongs to God, so he doesn't answer him directly, because that would be dishonorable. He would be saying, look at me, let me tell you the answer to this question, and instead he turns it back around to engage the lawyer. And as soon as he does that, as soon as he does that, and the lawyer responds, he's lost the battle. How so? How has he lost his, the battle, the thing that he wants to do, he loses. Why? He's already, he's already established that his power is in asking the question and holding the answer. So when Jesus then turns and asks the question, and then he's got to answer, he should have replied with another question. <laughs> the second he didn't, he was done. So as soon as he engaged with him by basically going, I'll go ahead and answer your question for you, he legitimized Jesus and his approach, and now it's like a battle of equals. It's almost like rabbi versus rabbi, kind of, who's going to take each other down? So just by not by answering the question, I wonder how long it took him to figure out, uh-oh. <laughs> Is Jesus' response as sassy and <laughs> as it is to mine of you've answered correctly, like reestablishing his authority as teacher over his Well, it's interesting. Um, so uh, the best way to translate it, and well, Christy's here, and she probably doesn't know it off the top of her head, but when I did the research, it's almost like, good boy. <laughs> I don't know, I mean, Christy will tell us if I'm wrong, but it, it's kind of like this sense of, could it, yeah, ding, 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 you know, uh, you know, uh, sticker for you. It's like, it's, it's, it is, to me, um, it, it reads, and you can read different rabbis on it, but it is an interesting piece where it is kind of like, good boy. It feels condescending. Yeah. Uh, a little, a little. No, I, th I think it would be, well, the way it reads here, it would it would be, you answered in an upright way. Do it and, and you will live. He didn't say anything about you're going to get eternal life from this. Right. He did say, yeah, you're, you're going to live obeying this thing. And it also didn't point out that I didn't answer the second question. Correct. But, yeah. by, but here's what I want us to make sure that we understand. By the way that he answers, i.e. the lawyer, He's already lost the argument in the sense of what he was attempting to do. And when Jesus, by Jesus, by the way that he responds, keeps his proper position, but also gives himself authority because he basically said something that a teacher would say to a student. It's like, good job, you were listening, you heard. I mean, whether you think it's condescending or not, I mean, but it is showing superiority. Right? I have the ability to say this because I am on par with you, or you know, in some senses, he's asserting himself above this particular point, right? So, um, oh gosh, the irony of this would not be lost on the people listening. Because as soon as that legal expert starts speaking up, people gather around there going, oh, watch this smackdown, <laughs> right? And then they're like, wait, 
Wait, he answered, wait, Jesus answered with a question, uh-oh, and then he answered it? So then, and you can see now as he continues on there, right? So the lawyer then has to come back in verse 29 with a second question, right? What is this? Jesus says, you know what, great answer, good boy, do this, and you'll live. So now, the lawyer has to do what? Reassert himself. Yes, reassert himself. He has to, in this culture, he has to save faith. So he has to save faith. So what does he do? So how does that that particular question assist him, or not assist him, in in saving face, or we might use the word in the West here, justifying himself? I think in this aspect, he's trying to say, okay, we have established neighbors or people we connect with. I see you as a rabbi, a rebel rabbi. Have they see Jesus as well counteracting what we believe? Kind of trying to see I'm above you in this aspect because I know the right answer to give a wild answer. Okay. Didn't they have lots of rules establishing the levels of relationship? Like who was your legal neighbor? Who were you responsible to? And who could you <coughs> not be responsible? How do you get out of that? Well, certainly in a collective honor shame culture, it there's. It, it, it rings out as we've seen before, yeah? So we have, they have a lot more social responsibilities and connections than, than we would have, right? So um, in Uganda, for example, um, we talk about neighbors. Like in our, in our community here, we have neighbors. We're usually talking about two people on each side of us or maybe something across from you, like seven, seven or eight people, four or five houses, right? In, in Uganda, in our village in Chikosa, your neighbor, it's like, oh, he's your neighbor. And I'm like, where? Well. The other side, which is their Ugandan way of saying, well, he's over there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but he's still your neighbor because he's in the village. same village. See, I grew up on a farm. Yeah. So anybody within like a 20-mile radius could be a neighbor. If, if your grandfather or great-grandfather knew their great-grandfather, they were your neighbor. The distance wasn't an issue. Yeah. It was relationship. Yeah. And that's I think that's what he's keying in on here. He's like... He's trying to save face by going, well, he's basically, basically what he's doing, if you see it, he's answering the second part of Jesus' first question, which was, how do you interpret it? So he's trying to do it again. He says to Jesus, you know, well, you know, how do you interpret it? Who's my neighbor? Now, if Jesus turns around and answers him straight up, he's lost the, he's lost the, the position of authority teacher over, and instead he does what every good teacher and every good rabbi would do in that situation, who is the authority and student. He gives them a question, but he illustrates the answer to his question in a parable, in a story that's going to be that's going to require. And this is the part that we know, right? He tells the story to illustrate the the answer to his question. So thirty to thirty-seven. That's the parable. Um, here's what's interesting, and, and um, Sherry and I had a great conversation about it this week, a little bit, back and forth on, um, on text, that um, Jesus is really great at lifting stories from the First Testament and using them as the basis for a story in the Second Testament. And I think I would be surprised if many of you know this, but Jesus actually lifted the basics of this parable from 
the life and times of Judah's wicked king Ahaz in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. And since I know you all have the First Testament memorized, <laughs> and you have all of the context to it, um, I won't, no, I'll go ahead and share it with you. So God was, so this is, this time period is the divided kingdom portion of Israel's history. It's after David, after Solomon, after Saul, all of that. And the kingdoms have been divided. Northern kingdom, ten tribes, two called Israel. Southern kingdom, two tribes, Judah. Um, and God was displeased with Ahaz, um, who allowed the king of Aram to defeat, and allowed, God did, allowed the king of Aram to defeat wicked king Ahaz in battle. One Israelite, so a brother, a neighbor, and a brother, and clan, and all of that, national, all of that, Pekka, killed 120,000 men himself. Let that sink in for a second. One warrior takes out 120,000, and the rest of the army collects 200,000 women and children and starts marching them back to Samaria, the capital, their, their capital, capital of Israel. On the way, God sends a messenger, a prophet, to them. And uh, Oded is his name, and Oded goes to the, these men who are so proud of these warriors, and he says, um, you, probably, you probably should step back and think again, because the thing that you did was like, it wasn't like what you were supposed to do. It's like, you kind of went like, you know, I'm not going to get even, I'm going to get like 100 times ahead. I mean, you didn't have to take out 120,000 people. That's just one guy. Who knows what the other ones took out? And you don't need to have these 200,000 women and children captives. That's a terrible, evil thing in the eyes of the Lord. So you probably should stop. The people around that, the regular army people around it, if you will, the military, hear that and they think to themselves, uh-oh. They go, all right, when these 200,000 people come in, let's make sure um, that we don't bring them into the camp because we don't want to add that to our guilt. God must be serious about this. So do not bring them to Samaria. Instead, stop. And in chapter 28, verse 15, it says this. They took charge of the captives. Listen to this. They dressed everyone who was naked with items taken from the loot. That's their taken. They gave them clothing, sandals, food, and drink, and bandaged their wounds. Everyone who couldn't walk, they placed on donkeys. And they brought them to Jericho, Palm City, near the Judean, near their Judean neighbors, and then they returned to Samaria. And what's so interesting about it is this time period in this history, although written here in 2 Chronicles, was also written in Leviticus, and it is the chapter that immediately follows the chapter that the lawyer quoted from. Talk about knowing the context. So as soon as he tells this parable, the lawyer... And anybody else who's schooled in the law goes, holy cow. He not only knows this thing, he knows the story that follows it. How cool is that? Like, we just think, oh, Jesus just came up with this story. No, he literally is plucking it from the same time period, from the same thing. And he goes, basically, what is he saying by doing that? By quoting this story... What is he doing to the lawyer? Trust me, I know what I'm okay, talking about. Okay, certainly demonstrating that. What else? What is he doing? How does this... I think he's placed himself on equal foot, at least equal footing. 
He's like, you think that I don't know, but let me tell you how much I do know that you can understand that you can't trick me. Okay. Maybe it's your turn to prove yourself. To me, it kind of looks like he's going, you know the law, but do you know how to apply the law? Because you can quote, but do you understand the application of it? I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. It's like, what do I need to do to inherit, inherit eternal life? And you can <laughs> The basis of everything is loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. When the guy's trying to weasel his way around, oh, uh, because it's difficult. We, we agree, right? It's difficult, right? And somehow in our mind, if we think, if we could somehow define who is our neighbor in a way that's, um, what's the word, advantageous for us? Am I wrong? Let's, Can we do that? Let's us stay in our comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so he, this lawyer is in this comfort zone. In his mind, he knows who his neighbor is because he's defined it for himself. And or his interpretation of the law has defined it. So when, when Jesus picks this up and he gives the different people that walk by, it's like he's hitting every single one of the excuses, right, that he could give as to these people are my neighbors and these people aren't. But he uses it, right? Jesus is using it as an illustration of how you love God and love others and yourself. So what from the parable can we take that says this is how we know, this is how love for God and each other is demonstrated? How do we see it in that text? We're not going to spend a long time on this, but how do we see it there? Because we face the same challenge, right? It's who How do we know what love looks like? It's it's who you show mercy. It's I mean that that was the teacher's the expert's answer is the one who showed mercy. Yeah. And what is mercy? It's love in action. It's love on what we would think is undeserved. It's action you don't expect. Without judgment. Okay. So mercy, we talk about grace being us receiving something we don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving something that we do deserve. Right. So showing that mercy, giving something someone. Yeah, okay. What else? I like the Albanian that people are more important than time. I love that. Isn't that cool? You've got things to do. You've got laws to follow. You've got, but at the end of the day, it was the person that devoted themselves to the people around them rather than the other stuff that people are important. And who are the people that a lawyer is most likely going to hang out with? They're most likely going to be hanging out with the lawyers and the, and the priests and the Levites. Because they all have the law in common, but they will never go near Samaritan. So I think there's a, a way in which we could actually step back and we could, we could identify the fact that really um, Jesus' parable, parable about the good Samaritan shows that the lawyer was really asking the wrong question. When he said, who is my neighbor, it takes him down a whole path that, that is exactly the opposite. Rather than asking, who is my neighbor, 
That is an attempt to limit responsibility, right? Instead, the right question should have been is, how can I be a good neighbor? So for us, I think as we go and think about application for us today, um, how easy is it for us to fall into that same type of, um, of trap? whereby we ask the wrong question, like, well, who is my neighbor? Who should I love? All of this, why is it, or what is it about those kinds of things and our desire to limit our responsibility? How do we see that at play in our lives? And then how do we, as a community and individuals, how do we, how do we overcome that? Because I don't think our problem is love. Like, we love people. But we do tend to narrow down and make, you know, fences about, A, who we're going to love and the kinds of response we expect from that love, right? I think the good question is, who is not my neighbor, is what we should be asking ourselves. You know? So I should be asking myself that as I'm, as I'm thinking about how I'm going to spend my time or what I'm going to do. Okay, well, are they not my neighbor? The answer is yes, they are my neighbor. So I, I have to do that. I have to reach out. I have to... I think when we identify somebody that's not our neighbor, that answers the question who our neighbor is. And I mean, I find a lot of times a paradox in that is the answer I'm looking for. I've determined this thing over here is not my responsibility or not my neighbor. And immediately I should be going, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> That is my name. How do I make them? That is my response. That's a good one. How do I? How do I make them? Of course, I would. I would try to challenge them. Like we're very good at loving people that act, behave, look the way that we think they should. We are not good at loving those that do not meet those parameters that we have set in place. And that's the challenge I think is loving those people too, regardless of whether. Of anything. And I think Joylin hit the nail on the head in the beginning of like, we're very good at saying, you need to be kind <laughs> rather than I should be kind toward you. Um, we're very good at pointing out the flaws in others. I could connect to you if you would just do this or just be better or more available. But. We're good at putting conditions on it. Responsibility. Well, you talked about giving to panhandlers. Well, we've got in mind, are they really needy or are they scamming us? Right. Mm -hmm. But you said your love towards that panhandler, you should just give no matter what their intention is. If, if that's what the spirit tells you to do, mm -hmm. it, you know, what they do with it is that's between them and the spirit and then between God, right? So some of that is, yeah, it's our way of going. Uh, okay, I like that. I good. think that's a really good point because I think a lot of the times. <clears throat> Now, I know a lot of times for me, my idea of loving somebody is I'm going to love somebody different than me so that they see this in me and they become this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's true. It's and, yeah. and that's, and we talk about loving people where they are, but we don't add the rest until they become like me. And love really does love people where they are. I really Even think, if they never become like I think one of the biggest challenges for us as Christians 
is that God is saving a lot of different people that we just don't really like. <laughs> and you read the epistles. Says the pastor. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I remember, you know, like a year ago, you asked me if I'd ever want to be a pastor again. And someone's like, I don't want to be because I don't want to like it. <laughs> and I think like when you read the epistles, like this was the constant challenge was you had these families, whether it's in Galatia or Colossia, that were forming, and it was just people that were just radically different from each other. And God was saving these people. And we, we inherently want God to save people that look like us. We don't. I, I like what Phil said. I, I think Phil really hit that. It's like, if there's someone that I think is not my neighbor, that's probably the spirit poking me. Like, yeah. I need you to love that guy. I think that um, I love how uh, Matt continued being here this weekend, and we just last night at whatever it was eight o'clock said, "Hey, give us an example." And when he when he pulled out that example, I mean, it was right in your head, right? Um, that was a spirit thing because I love that idea that. People are more important than time. And so I think for me, like the, the one thing that stands in the way, I think for many of us to be the kind of loving people that God wants us to do is we have not built enough margin in our lives. Time and money. Yes. Right? So what that what the Samaritan did that was like so laudy was so that was lauded was he stopped took the time, not just to go, oh, he doesn't look so good, let me call someone. He actually took the time and, you know, brought him, made sure he was set up on the way back, checked out, you know, all of that piece, and making sure there's enough um, margin in our lives so that when we hear the Spirit, and we all know it, we hear the Spirit, we sense the Spirit say, you probably should do something, and we're like, yeah, or if I have that, Right? And I think that's this idea of fruition is about how do I come to where I'm, I'm walking in the spirit in such a way um, that I'm able to respond and be sensitive to those things. And I know for, for me and for others, I suspect here, it's going to take us, require us to take a step back and consider margin in our lives for people and margin in our lives financially, because a lot of times, I mean, that, it was a great cost to this, this man, right? He took something, and so if, we, if we're constantly running at the edge, now sometimes we don't have a choice, but sometimes we put ourselves in that situation, right? We cram ourselves, and we spend every dime, and all of that in a, you know, this, this I don't know, this false sense of security or something. So hopefully over the next several weeks as we gather together and we take a look at um, each one of these, um, there'll be a challenge for us. So this week I'm hoping that um, uh, that we would be sensitive to, and here's my challenge to you and to me, to be sensitive to the people, the neighbors that God places in our path and be willing to maybe, instead of walking away, consider, okay, how can I demonstrate that people are more important than time? And um, maybe even pay attention to um, the, the people that we try to avoid <laughs> and places we try to avoid because we know that. All right? Good. All right, we close each of our gatherings here at the table in the same way. By being obedient to Christ's command to remember his sacrifice on our behalf, we do so through these simple elements, the bread which represents his body, the juice which represents his blood.
And in humility, first we receive with the words, the body of Christ given for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. And then in that same humility, we turn and offer it to the person next to us with those same words, the body of Christ given for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. As always at the table, there's no judgment here if you choose not to participate for any reason whatsoever. Just pass it along the table and it'll continue on around. This is something we do to remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. This is the body of Christ for us and the blood of Christ for us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.